Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 211, The Ice King of Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. What you're about to hear is actually the third script that I attempted to write for this week. I started out researching the murder of Star Faithful, a beautiful 25-year-old flapper whose body washed up on a Long Island beach in 1931. Her family would accuse Boston Mayor Andrew Peters of murdering her. When I sat down to start writing the episode during the week of Thanksgiving, there was just far too much murder and addiction and child sexual abuse. After a few days, I shifted gears, decided to research a lighter topic, and for some strange reason settled on the Bussy Bridge disaster. I got pretty far down that path before realizing that a Jamaica Plain train wreck, where 38 commuters were killed and even more were injured, was not the answer to my Thanksgiving blues. Switching gears again, I landed on a topic that's been on my podcast backlog for a long time. Ice seems like such a simple thing today, when I can just go to my freezer and grab a few cubes to cool down my drink. But before artificial refrigeration, New Englanders would cut and store ice during the long winter to keep their food fresh and their drinks cold during the summer. That was all well and good for people who lived near an ice pond anyway, but what about people in the faraway tropics who might want to get their hands on some ice? Until the early 1800s, the idea of shipping ice to the tropics was seen as a crazy pipe dream. But then along came a Boston entrepreneur who built a fortune and a reputation as the Ice King. But before we talk about Boston's Ice King, I just want to pause for a moment to thank our latest Patreon sponsor, John B. John's a longtime friend of the show who often shares our stuff on social media. By signing up to sponsor the show, John and listeners like him commit to giving a small amount each month to help us cover the expenses involved in making a podcast. Their generosity means that we can pay for things like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, audio processing tools, research databases, and much, much more. I just want to say a heartfelt thanks to John and all our sponsors. If you're not yet supporting us and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to everyone who supports the show. And now it's time to learn about the Ice King. In September of 1833, an American ship called the Tuscany crossed the Bay of Bengal, sighted the Indian coast, and sailed up the Hooghly River to the city we now call Kolkata, landing on the 13th. The crew had been at sea for four months and seven days, leaving Boston on May 6th. The ship's arrival heralded an economic shift, undercutting the market for a product that had been a luxury good and transforming it into a commodity. It also marked the culmination of almost 30 years of ambition. An article the following year in the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal describes the ship's reception. The arrival of the Tuscany with a cargo of ice from America forms an epoch in the history of Calcutta worthy of commemoration, as a facetious friend remarked, in a medal of frosted silver. In the month of May last, we received a present of some ice from Dr. Wise at Hoogley whose efforts have been so long directed to the extension of its manufacture by the native process, as a proof that the precious luxury might be preserved by careful husbandry until the season when its coolness was the most grateful. Little did we then contemplate being able to return the compliment with a solid lump of the clearest crystal ice at the conclusion of the rains. 
nor that we should be finally indebted to American enterprise for the realization of a measure for which we have so long envied our more fortunate countrymen in the upper provinces. That a body of ice may be easily conveyed from one side of the globe to the other, crossing the line, meaning the equator, twice, with a very moderate loss from liquefaction. Before the arrival of the Tuscany, ice was nearly unknown in the tropical coastal plains of India, where Kolkata lies. While ice was common in the Himalayas and their foothills, there was no infrastructure in place to harvest and ship it to the coastal cities. To the extent that locals had any experience with ice, it was small amounts made by digging cold pits in the temperate inland areas, waiting for a frosty morning, and skimming the thin crust of ice from the surface of the water in an unglazed clay pot lined with reeds at the bottom of the pit. Each morning's collection was combined with the previous, until there was a small nugget of slushy ice, which could be protected with insulation until the summer, like the one apparently produced by Dr. Wise at Hughley. Obviously, such a scarce and labor-intensive product was only available to the noble class and the officers of the British East India Company. Halfway around the world, the far end of this global supply chain led to a wharf in Charlestown, where Frederick Tudor, the architect of the global ice trade, would write in the Ice House diary that he kept for a half-century, The frost covers the windows, the wheels creak, the boys run, winter rules, and $50,000 worth of ice now floats for me upon Fresh Pond. Fresh Pond in Cambridge and Spy Pond in Arlington were among the first bodies of fresh water where armies of workers descended in winter to harvest the frozen water that was the cash crop of the cold months. Even Walden Pond in Concord was harvested, where Thoreau watched the operation and wrote, Thus it appears that the sweltering inhabitants of Charleston and New Orleans, of Madras and Bombay and Calcutta, drink at my well. The pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. An article published in the Accounting Historian's Journal in 1984 notes, At first, Tudor employed work crews to cut the ice by hand from throughout eastern Massachusetts and coastal New Hampshire and Maine. As demand grew, Tudor's icemen used equipment such as the horse-drawn ice cutter, which was invented by Nathaniel Wyeth. Wyeth eventually developed specialized tools for cutting and processing ice at all stages of production, and Tudor strongly urged Wyeth to patent these devices and restrict their use to Tudor operations. Once the ice on a pond reached a depth of at least 12 inches, though 15 or 18 inches would be preferable, the ice harvest began. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm not the world's biggest fan of Henry David Thoreau and his famous work, Walden, where he bangs on and on endlessly about the necessity of self-reliance without mentioning the inconvenient fact that while Thoreau was on Walden, his friends and neighbors kept him fed and his mother stopped by to do the washing. However, there are times when I admire his power of description, like when he spoke of entering the cloud factory at the top of Mount Katahdin as sitting in a chimney and waiting for the smoke to blow away. We'll call on Thoreau's descriptive powers here because he watched and described the process of ice harvesting for his chapter on winter in Walden. In the winter of 46 and 47, there came a hundred men of Hyperborean extraction swooping down upon our pond one morning with many carloads of ungainly-looking farming tools. Sleds, plows, drill barrows, turf knives, spades, saws, rakes and each man was armed with a double-pointed pike staff, such as is not described in the New England farmer or the cultivator. Thus, for sixteen days, I saw from my window a hundred men at work, like busy husbandmen, 
with teams and horses and apparently all the implements of farming, such as a picture we see on the first page of the almanac. To speak literally, a hundred Irishmen with Yankee overseers came from Cambridge every day to get out the ice. They divided it into cakes by methods too well known to require description. The methods of harvesting ice may have been too well known to require description in Thoreau's time, but in 2020 we can be forgiven for needing a bit more detail. First, horse-drawn scrapers removed the snow from on top of the ice. Then a foreman surveyed out a 600-square-foot rectangle on the ice. In the next step, another horse pulled a device that looked a lot like a traditional sled, with the runners set 44 inches apart. One runner was normal, and the other was a serrated blade that cut a two-inch deep groove in the surface of the ice. On the return pass, the normal runner rode in the groove cut in the first pass. Then it would turn and come back again. In relatively short order, a grid of 44-inch squares was scored into the surface of the ice. Next up was another Wyeth invention, the ice plow. The plow had runners set 44 inches apart to follow the grid, but it also had progressively larger chisel-like blades that followed the scored grooves. As the horse plodded slowly forward, each successive blade cut a couple of inches deeper into the ice, until the blocks of ice were nearly ready to float free. An article about ice harvesting at Jamaica Pond published by the JP Historical Society describes the final step. The final cutting of the ice was done with hand tools. These included long-bladed saws with long-handled spades and fork bars. Large sections of the 600-foot square were cut away, and these floats were ridden like rafts. The larger floats were divided into smaller pieces as it was floated toward the ice house. The small pieces were then pushed onto a conveyor for the trip to the ice house 70 feet above the pond surface. Out at Walden, old Henry David reported on the same process, where the cut blocks being sledded to the shore were rapidly hauled off to an ice platform and raised by grappling irons and block and tackle worked by horses onto a stack as surely as so many barrels of flour, and there placed evenly side by side and row upon row, as if they formed the solid base of an obelisk designed to pierce the very clouds. They told me that in a good day they could get out a thousand tons, which was the yield of about one acre. Deep ruts and cradle holes were worn in the ice, as on terra firma, by the passage of the sleds over the same track, and the horses invariably ate their oats out of cakes of ice hollowed out like buckets. They stacked up the cakes thus in the open air in a pile 35 feet high on one side and six or seven rods square, putting hay between the outside layers to exclude the air. From the ice house on each pond, the ice had to be hauled to the port of Boston and loaded on a ship. Early on, this was done with horse-drawn carts, but as time went on, more and more was hauled by rail, starting with a spur of the Charlestown Branch Railway that was laid directly to Tudor's Ice House on Fresh Pond in Cambridge. An 1875 issue of Scribner's Monthly Magazine describes the process of loading a cargo of ice from a rail car onto a ship in an era when the ice trade was fully matured. The loading of ships at Charlestown is, perhaps, one of the most interesting features connected with the ice trade. As the cars pass down the track from the main road to the wharf, where the ships are waiting, they're separately weighed. Then, the cars move to a position opposite the gangway of the ship. A long platform rigged with iron or steel rails is placed between the car and the gangway of the ship. Over this platform, the ice is slid from the car door to the ship's rail. 
Frederick Tudor would say that unlike a summertime farmer who had to worry about droughts and rains that might cause his crops to rot in the fields, the winter never rots in the sky. However, there were some years when the winter never seemed to come. When ice conditions were marginal, a thinner sheet could be cut, stacked, and refrozen to form larger blocks. Or, crews could drill holes in the ice to draw water up to refreeze on top of the existing ice sheet. When conditions were really poor, however, an ice harvester would have to resort to desperate measures. During an unusually warm February, Frederick Tudor's diary records the difficulties in finding ice in the ponds around Boston, as temperatures in the afternoon approached 60 degrees. The ice crews would do nearly anything to keep their harvest out of the warm winter sun. Send a cart from town with sails amounting to 200 yards in order to avert the sun's rays from a small part, at least, of the ice. Observing the state of things, I took Wyeth in my chaise and we went through an intricate and very rough woods road to Long Pond, which I remember to be shaded on the south border. Here was a ribbon of ice about 20 feet wide and 150 feet long. I was induced to instruct Wyeth, who at first was somewhat against it, to undertake to get out what could be saved of value, which he thinks will be 15 cords. During one of these interminable warm spells, Tudor wrote in his diary about the genius of Nathaniel Jarvis Wyeth, a distant cousin of the painters N.C. Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth, and Jamie Wyeth. January 13, 1828. Thermometer, 45 degrees. I found Wyeth wandering about the woods at Fresh Pond in all the lonely perturbation of invention and contrivance. His mind evidently occupied in improving the several contrivances which he is perfecting for carrying into good effect improvements in his several machines for the ice business. I have from time to time given him several hints, particularly respecting the ice cutter which I first suggested to him, and he has improved the plan of last year, and he now tells me that he has improved upon this year's improvement. For minds highly excited and in great activity, there is no Sunday. It's interesting to note that Nathaniel Wyeth and Frederick Tudor revolutionized the ice industry together. Tudor would become known worldwide as the Ice King, while Wyeth is remembered more as a mountain man who set up two very early trading posts along the Oregon Trail. Ice King Frederick Tudor was the son of William Tudor. Back in episode 131, we described how William wooed and won the heart of the loyalist Delia Jarvis, even as he served as a colonel and judge advocate general in the Continental Army. The couple had six children who lived to adulthood, two daughters and four sons. Frederick was the only son who didn't go to Harvard, but that did nothing to deflate his sense of self-worth. A sarcastic description by a former business partner named John W. Damon, who believed that Tudor had cheated him, gives a sense of Frederick's bearing. The distinguished gentleman is Frederick Tudor, Esquire, of Boston, who, to the personal superiority of birth and education, which confers so many advantages in a contention of this sort, unites the many other advantages flowing from a numerous family connection and a large circle of influential friends in the higher walks of life. He sounds insufferable. The very earliest origins of Frederick's interest in the ice trade are shrouded in legend. In her 1909 book, Old Boston Days and Ways, Mary Carolyn Crawford wrote about one possibly apocryphal story for the origin of Tudor's interest in frozen water. The ice business seems to have interested Frederick Tudor while he was still only a boy. 
His family owned an estate of some 250 acres out in Saugus, and it was on the tiny pond near the almshouse there that his first experiments in the cutting and storing of ice were made. Frederick maintained until his death at the age of 80 that the idea of shipping ice to warmer climates was his and his alone. He would fly into a rage at any suggestion to the contrary and even disowned a close friend and confidant who suggested otherwise to him in a private letter. However, as Lewis Simpson's 1968 journal article, Boston Ice and Letters in the Age of Jefferson, points out, most people who have studied the ice business attribute the idea to a different tutor. The historic possibility of the ice trade was created when Frederick Tudor left Boston Latin School at the age of 13 to become the youngest apprentice to DeCoston and Marshall, a firm on State Street. This was an act of rebellion. He was about the right age in his day to enter Harvard, as his three brothers dutifully did. Frederick refused to be a Harvard man and scornfully denounced Harvard as a place for loafers. Eventually, Colonel Tudor set Frederick up in the commodity market in Boston. Speculator and man about town, Frederick Tudor at the age of 22 seemed to be on the way to becoming merely another State Street operator, when William suggested at a fashionable party that ice from the Tudor's Pond in Rockwood would be a profitable commodity in Caribbean ports. The time was the summer of 1805. Very likely, the Bostonians at the party were enjoying ice drinks and ice confections, made with ice taken from nearby ponds and preserved through the hot months in a family ice house. William here is not Frederick's famous father, but instead is Brother William, one of the Harvard tutors who was interested mostly in literary pursuits, but who would also be instrumental in starting up Frederick's ice business. As his mind became fixed on the idea of shipping ice to the West Indies, Frederick heard more and more anecdotal evidence that he could pull off such a scheme. He wrote in an 1805 letter to a business associate's cousin, the idea of carrying ice to tropical climates will at first no doubt startle and astonish you, but when you take into consideration the following circumstances, I think you will cease to doubt the practicability of the thing and adopt the proposal I shall presently make to you. The captain of an American ship in London during peacetime could obtain no freight or employ for his vessel. Someone said to him in jest what he took in earnest. We've had a mild winter and there's no ice in the ice houses. Suppose you go to Norway for a cargo. He did, and arrived at London with a full cargo, and realized a very handsome profit, notwithstanding he was detained a long time and settling with the custom house on the account of duties. Ice has been frequently found to go on the ends of boards safely to the West Indies without thawing during the voyage. This is a very remarkable fact, because the ice so situated must have been very much exposed in the damp hold of the vessel loaded with green boards. Ice creams were carried to Trinidad by the English when they were in possession of that island in pots packed in sand from Europe. Ice is carried every year to St. Eustatius and is preserved there. All these stories of the successful preservation of ice on the way to the Caribbean got Frederick Tudor's mind racing. On August 1, 1805, his ice house diary notes, William and myself have this day determined to get together what property we have and embark on the undertaking of carrying ice to the West Indies the ensuing winter. By October 1805, Frederick and William had enlisted the help of a cousin named James Savage. While Frederick worked on financing the operation and harvesting ice, William and James would go to the Caribbean island of Martinique. There, they would set up an insulated ice house to store the frozen wares, start a company to sell the ice, 
and begin marketing New England ice to the locals. Though the Caribbean during the Napoleonic Wars was a hotbed of privateering by British, French, and Spanish ships, the two cousins made it to Martinique in one piece, where they utterly ignored their role in the partnership. They failed to set up a corporation to sell the ice, and they failed to build an insulated ice house. They did, however, successfully market New England ice, creating the equivalent of a viral marketing campaign that built significant demand. Meanwhile, back in Boston, Frederick found it hard to get potential investors to take him seriously. Another 1805 entry in the Ice House Diary says, People only laugh and believe me not when I tell them I'm going to carry ice to the West Indies. Luckily for Frederick Tudor, cargo space on ships bound from Boston to the Caribbean was cheap. Boston imported sugar and molasses, rice, cotton, and other goods grown by slave labor on the plantations of the Indies. But at the time, Boston didn't ship many goods back to the Caribbean. With many ships going in ballast, that is, with a hold full of worthless stones to give the ship stability at sea, captains were perfectly happy to use seemingly worthless frozen water as ballast instead, while collecting a minor fee from Tudor. The Accounting Historian's Journal article notes the first of these shipments a few months after William Tudor and James Savage had left for Martinique. On the outgoing tide, the morning of February 13, 1806, the brig Favorite, Captain Pearson commanding, cleared Boston Harbor with the first cargo of New England ice bound for the West Indies. The Favorite arrived in Martinique after a 20-day passage. Upon clearing customs, Tudor circulated the following advertising broadside announcing his novel new product. Today, March 7th, and during three consecutive days, there will be put up for sale in small amounts a cargo of ice brought into this port very well preserved from Boston by the brig favorite, Captain Pearson. This sale will take place immediately and will last three days only, the brig having to proceed at that time to another island. The price is 10 cents a pound. It is necessary to bring a wool cloth or a piece of covering to wrap the ice. This means preserves it much longer. With that first shipment, the Boston Gazette chortled at Tudor's expense. No joke, a vessel with a cargo of 80 tons of ice has cleared out from this port for Martinique. We hope this will not prove a slippery speculation. It very nearly did. Frederick Tudor had invested about $10,000 of mostly borrowed money into that first shipment to the Caribbean, so it's quite unfortunate that there was no established ice house for storing his wares. Thanks to his brother and cousin, there was a healthy demand for ice in Martinique in the spring of 1806. Even those who weren't initially convinced were won over when they saw the profits that could be made with New England ice. In a letter home, Tudor described how one merchant was persuaded to place an ice order. The man who keeps the Tivoli Garden insisted ice creams could not be made in this country, and that the ice itself would all thaw before he could get it home. I told him I had made them here and putting my fist pretty hard upon the table, I called for an order of 60 pounds of ice, and in a pretty warm tone directed the man to have his cream ready, and that I would come to freeze it for him in the morning, which I did accordingly, being determined to spare no pains to convince these people that they could not only have ice, but all the luxuries arising as well here as elsewhere. The Tivoli man received for these creams the first night $300. After this, he was humble as a mushroom. The Ice House Diary reveals that, along with product demonstrations like at the Tivoli Gardens, Tudor also understood the value of product placement. 
it becomes necessary to establish with one of the most conspicuous barkeepers a jar and give him his ice for a year. The object is to make the whole population use cold drinks instead of warm or tepid, and it will be affected in the course of three years. A single conspicuous barkeeper having one of the jars and selling steadily his liquors all cold without an increase in the price render it absolutely necessary that the others come to it or lose their customers. They are compelled to do what they could in no other way be induced to undertake. By shipping the ice from New England in February for a destination just a couple of weeks away, Tudor could get away with loading his ice into the ship's hold without much in the way of insulation. When it arrived in the tropical climate of Martinique with no waiting ice house, the 130 tons of ice, and thus Tudor's profits, began melting away. Sales were brisk, but not brisk enough to keep up with shrinkage, so Tudor lost about $4,000 on that first shipment. As 1806 came to an end, his ice house diary concluded, The plan of transporting the ice is perfectly good. Now the one thing needful is an ice house, which will keep the ice after it has arrived in the West Indies. The following year, William Tudor negotiated a license to send shipments of ice to Jamaica, Barbados, and Antigua, as well as arranging to build an ice house in Havana, Cuba. This first ice house, however, didn't work very well, and the shipments to the other islands suffered the same problems as the first shipment to Martinique. Frederick Tudor firmly believed that he was onto a winning proposition, and kept sending good money after bad. At the end of 1807, President Jefferson imposed an embargo that prohibited U.S. ships from trading with foreign ports. As the embargo went into effect, Tudor found himself upwards of $25,000 in debt with no market for his product. At one point, the Ice House Diary laments, I found myself without money and without friends, and with only a cargo of ice in a torrid zone to depend on for the supply of both. Before his fortunes turned around, Tudor would spend time in debtor's prison in both Boston and Cambridge, and at one point described himself in his diary as pursued by sheriffs to the very wharf as he dodged his creditors to get a ship out of Boston Harbor. Meanwhile, Frederick's father, William Tudor the Elder, former law student of John Adams, judge advocate general of the Continental Army, and wealthy scion of the family, fell onto hard times of his own. As Henry Greenleaf Pearson described in an article for the Proceedings of the Mass Historical Society in the 1930s, the fortunes of the family were threatened with disaster. Along with several men of means, Colonel Tudor had embarked on a land development scheme in South Boston. So profitable did the venture promise to be that he set out with his wife and his daughter Delia for a second European tour. In the two years or more of their stay abroad, the ladies tasted to the full the delights of Napoleon's new imperial court. But when the family returned to Boston, they found their fortune gone. The South Boston land speculation is an incident well known in the history of the city's development. To a number of her leading citizens, it brought misfortune. To William Tudor, ruin. From the time of this disaster to his death ten years later, his income was the meager salary provided by his position as clerk of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. His debts were numerous, and the respect in which he was held by his friends and contemporaries did not protect him from threats of arrest. The end of the embargo found Frederick Tudor deep in debt and dodging his Boston creditors. He skipped town in 1810, made his way to Havana, and managed to negotiate exclusive rights to sell ice in Cuba for six years. 
He personally oversaw the construction of a new ice house that was built snugly enough to allow ice to survive all the way through the tropical summer, from April to September, which Henry Greenleaf Pearson described in detail. This building, which represents probably the first attempt made by man to preserve a large quantity of ice above ground, merits some description. On the outside, it was 25 feet square. The dimensions of the inner shell were 19 feet. Its height, 16. On top was a floor, trapped doors in which provided access to the area below. In the space between the floor and the roof were the sales room, reached by an outside staircase, and living quarters for the keeper. The structure was supported by 156 red cedar posts. As the building was only 100 feet from the place where the vessel lay, a staging running from the boat's side to the door in the second story was used for unloading the cargo. When this ice house, which held about 150 tons, was filled, the top layer was covered with 9 inches of shavings. In his ice house diary, Tudor celebrated the, somewhat limited, success of his Cuban venture. Thus is the winter of my discontent made glorious summer, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Drink, Spaniards, and be cool that I, who have suffered so much in the cause, may be able to go home and keep myself warm. The Simpson article describes how, although we would remain in debt for a bit longer, this was the moment when the young Frederick's luck began to turn. Tudor re-established faith in his business, and at last built what proved to be a genuinely efficient ice house for the Cuban climate. Although he had to hide from his creditors each time he came back to the United States, his business slowly improved. It was to improve more rapidly when Tudor began to carry ice to Charleston and New Orleans, cities that he learned offered more lucrative markets for ice than ports in the West Indies. In November 1816, Frederick Tudor described his ignoble departure from Boston for the port of Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, hateful and debasing feelings, to be in such a situation as to be obliged to leave one's home in anything like a clandestine manner. I could not conceal my intention, and I did not but I am satisfied my departure was without the knowledge of those who could and who would have stopped me. Had the vessel been delayed a day, the present plan for this city would not have been undertaken. In American ports like Charleston, Tudor was quickly forced to give up his hopes of exclusivity. Unlike colonial governments in Cuba, Martinique, or Jamaica, the South Carolina legislature saw little reason to grant him a monopoly on the ice trade especially when representatives from the interior counties believed that his product was a luxury item that would only benefit the elites around Charleston itself. Instead, he would use his advantage as the first to market to establish a foothold, create demand, and set a price that competitors would have a hard time matching. An advertisement he placed in the Charleston paper stresses how affordably his ice was priced. The ice establishment at Fitzsimmons Wharf is now opened. Ice will be for sale at all hours of the day, from sunrise to sundown, except when the ice housekeeper is necessarily absent at his meals. It will be sold in any quantity from one pound to 500 pounds. The price at which ice is now offered in Charleston is as low as it was in the northern cities when the article was first introduced to them in the summer season. As earlier advertisements in Cuba and elsewhere had done, the Charleston ad goes on to explain that the best way to carry ice home is wrapped in a blanket which could, helpfully, be purchased at the ice house for just $1. And the best way to store the ice at home is in a warm, dry closet, because it is a well-attested principle that whatever will keep a man warm, with the exception of the sun and fire, will keep ice cold.
Within a few years, Tudor's trade with southern ports put him on firm financial footing. By 1818, he no longer had to sneak in and out of Massachusetts, landing at Boston in the open, instead of coming ashore at small ports like Sandwich under the cover of darkness. In the year 1819, the ice trade made him a profit of about $24,000. When a creditor that year sent a letter demanding payment of a $15 note, Tudor's haughty response shows how quickly he had wrapped himself in the mental trappings of wealth. You do not appear to be aware that I have this season sold nearly $30,000 worth of ice, and that I expect to sell six to 8000 more before the close of the year. That my ice houses cost each $10,000. That of these I have four, and they are fine, fireproof buildings occupying as much ground as two of the central wharf stores. That they are principally insured about $6,000 against fire. That the sales are regular, progressive, and certain, being like the demand for bread at a baker's. That I am inevitably and unavoidably rich. That I desire no favors and will accept of none, meaning to pay the face of your demand. Had you known these things, it is probable that you would not have asked me for the $15 so very uncivilly, but that you would have given it to your son Samuel and sent him to me to request payment. It's basically the 19th century equivalent of, don't you know who I am? Again. Just insufferable. In 1820, Tudor believed it was time to expand into the New Orleans market, and the funding for this venture came from an unexpected source. Frederick's literary-minded brother, William Tudor, had helped lay the groundwork for the ice trade in the Caribbean and knew the business in detail. He'd written a couple of books and a number of essays, and he now wanted to start a literary magazine called the North American Review. He came to Frederick with a novel idea. He would approach some of his Harvard friends who were interested in the new journal for funding, which he would then invest in opening an ice house in New Orleans. As Frederick paid back the loan, the principal would be returned to his investors, but then the interest would support the magazine. With the right benefactors, it worked, providing both the New Orleans Ice House and the North American Review with startup money. As Frederick Tudor began earning what would become an immense fortune, he was also earning a reputation as one of America's first monopolists. He was so possessive of the concept of shipping ice to warm climates that he hated not only competition, but the very idea of competition. His Ice House diary records the secret glee that he felt upon learning that a competitor's ship had wrecked and that the cargo was lost. It was mentioned today that a cargo of ice has been lost bound to the Delaware. This makes three cargoes this spring which have been lost. It is an ill wind which blows nobody good. I am sorry to profit by the misfortunes of my neighbors, but as I first taught the world that ice may be transported by sea, I may consider the business as mine to a certain extent. How dare anyone else enter the business that he had invented? I got one of my worst-ever college grades in economics, so I let the article in the Accounting Historian's Journal explain how Tudor's company engaged in predatory pricing to drive upstart competitors out of his best markets. Competition in the ice trade was a pervasive problem for Frederick Tudor, particularly in mainland cities of the United States. Tudor frequently resorted to cutthroat price reductions to control the ice trade in such southern cities as Savannah and Charleston. While the monopoly Tudor enjoyed in Havana allowed him to sell ice for as much as 25 cents a pound, in South Carolina and Georgia, prices as low as 6 to 8 cents a pound were hard to maintain because of competition from New York entrepreneurs. 
Tudor apparently took an active role in pricing decisions. His typical strategy was to cut prices drastically to force his competitors out of business. For example, Tudor would price his ice for a penny a pound until a competitor's supply had melted at the docks. Then he would raise prices to profitable levels. His diaries record the following case. This interferer will get about $5 in all for what must have cost him at least $100. This business is mine. I commenced this business and have a right to rejoice in ill success attending the others who would profit by my discovery without allowing me the credit of teaching them. Establishing a market for Boston ice in India would be the culmination of three decades of work, and Tudor was driven to succeed by the failure of another venture. An investment in coffee completely collapsed, losing a vast sum of money. Though Frederick was now wiser, wealthier, and more able to sustain such a loss without ending up in debtor's prison. In 1834, he summarized his position, writing, In the first place, the speculation in coffee has totally failed. I bought and sold about seven million pounds. There is only about a half million still to be sold, and the loss will reach about $175,000. This apparently disastrous coffee speculation, which has ruined its author, William Savage, has been attended with some good effects in my case. It has invigorated me to efforts in renewal of the expedition to Calcutta, which had been nearly abandoned by me from laziness. Just as the notes for his coffee speculation came due, he got news that his entire first cargo of ice to Kolkata had sold for a premium. Tudor was back in the black, and he doubled down on the India trade, with Henry Greenleaf Pearson raving, The feat of carrying a cargo of ice on a four-month's voyage, crossing the equator twice, stirred men's imaginations and greatly increased his prestige. Moreover, by providing an article of commerce, which could be shipped from Boston to Calcutta, he facilitated the means for a return cargo, and thus kept up a trade between the two ports that otherwise would have languished. The article in the Accounting Historian's Journal details how he took advantage of this expanded direct trade between Boston and Calcutta to diversify the goods he shipped to India beyond simple ice. Because the ice functioned as ballast, Tudor's ships also carried other cargo. For example, an 1875 cargo to Bombay contained, in addition to ice, the following items. Rosin, drills, oil, glass, boards, and lobsters. A cargo from Boston to Calcutta contained rock oil, drills, salmon, lobsters, and boards. Other ships carried apples, butter, tar, pitch, turpentine, ice pitchers, painkillers, ink, manufactured cloth, and manufactured tobacco. Of course, a voyage of over four months from Boston to Kolkata took more preparation and precaution than a quick jaunt to New Orleans or Havana. Our article in the 1834 Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal explains, In shipping it to the West Indies, a voyage of 10 or 15 days, little precaution is used. The whole hold of the vessel is filled with it, having a lining of tan about four inches thick upon the bottom and sides of the hold, and the top lifts covered with a layer of hay. The hatches are then closed and are not allowed to be opened till the ice is ready to be discharged. For the voyage to India, a much longer one than had been hitherto attempted, some additional precautions were deemed necessary for the preservation of the ice. The ice hold was an insulated house, extending from the after part of the forward hatch about 50 feet in length. It was constructed as follows. 
a floor of one-inch deal planks was first laid down upon the dunnage at the bottom of the vessel. Over this was strewed a layer one foot thick of tan, that is, the refuse bark from the tanner's pits, thoroughly dried, which is found to be a very good and cheap non-conductor. Over this was laid another deal planking, and the four sides of the hold were built up in exactly the same manner. The pump, well, and mainmast were boxed round in the same manner. The cubes of ice were then packed or built together so close as to leave no space between them, and to make the whole one solid mass. About 180 tons were thus stowed. On the top was pressed down closely a foot of hay, and the hole was shut up from access of air, with a deal planking one inch thick nailed upon the lower surface of the lower deck timbers, the space between the planks and the deck being stuffed with tan. The ice was shipped on the 6th and 7th of May, 1833, and discharged in Calcutta on the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th of September, making the voyage in four months and seven days. The amount of wastage could not be exactly ascertained from the sinking of the ice gauge, because on opening the chamber, it was found that the ice had melted between each block, and not from the exterior only, in the manner of one solid mass, as was anticipated. Calculating from the rods and from the diminishing draft of the ship, Mr. Dixwell estimated the loss on arrival at Diamond Harbor to be 55 tons, six or eight tons more being lost during the passage up the river, and probably about 20 in landing. About 100 tons were finally deposited in the ice house on shore, a lower room in a house at Brightman's Gaut, rapidly floored and lined with planks for the occasion. A British newspaper editor wrote of the arrival, how many Calcutta tables glittered with ice that day? The butter dishes were filled. The goblets of water were converted to miniature Arctic seas with icebergs floating on the surface. All business was suspended until noon, and people rushed to pay each other congratulatory visits. Everybody invited everybody to dinner to taste claret and beer cooled by the American importation. The establishment of an ice house at Calcutta was both a capstone of three decades of effort and symbolic of the creation of a global empire of ice. Tudor would also establish ice houses at Bombay and Madras, eventually expanding to Hong Kong, Singapore, and more ports in South and East Asia. Ice was always Frederick Tudor's bread and butter, but much like his early partner Nathaniel Wyeth, Tudor's mind was always racing, thinking up schemes, both practical and otherwise. The Pearson article notes a few of the earliest ideas he came up with. His interest in contrivances showed itself at an early age. When he was only 17, he devised a siphon pump for pumping water from the holds of vessels and drafted a letter to the Royal Society describing it. It would seem that he hardly took it seriously, however, for the sheet on which the letter was written is principally filled with a description of the device in verse, evidently composed for the entertainment of his sisters. The double dory consisted of two 20-foot dories fastened side by side with a space of five feet between them. It excited the wonder of the Lynn fishermen, and when under sail gave its occupants a good drenching. Finally, mention should be made of the fact that it was Tudor who introduced the first steam locomotive into New England. In January 1830, when four bills for railroads were before the legislature, he brought from Charleston a small locomotive of one-half horsepower, and a car large enough to carry one passenger. Running on the sidewalk at four miles an hour, the train attracted great attention. Steam, he writes, will soon take the place of horses in ordinary stagecoaches, 
and I should not be surprised if it should be employed for heavy draft and ordinary purposes. The times are surcharged with novel inventions and improvements of all kinds. Steam seems now the ordinary power. In all probability, some other and more convenient one will be discovered. During the War of 1812, Tudor proposed a new hull shape for ships of war. Publishing a pamphlet laying out his thinking, in which he said it would combine the shape of a dolphin and the shape of a duck, in a perfect balance of speed and stability, concluding, She is intended to sail faster than other vessels before the wind, close hauled to it, or with wind free. To be an excellent sea boat, because on account of her fullness she will live light on the water. To rise easily on a sea, because she does not present any straight line in her main body from stem to stern to be under perfect command of her rudder, because it has so strong a hold on the water, to go about with great facility and quickness, because she has so strong a hold on the water aft, and so small a hold forward. He sent a copy of the pamphlet to former President Jefferson, saying, If you should take the trouble of looking over the few sheets which I have the honor to enclose, and you should think me correct... Your favorable opinion will aid me much in an application which I propose to make to the executive department of the government, to have my model carried into effect in one or more of the line of battleships or frigates which Congress may determine to build. Jefferson declined gracefully, writing back, I thank you for the pamphlet, but of all the subjects on which I could have been asked for an opinion, that of naval construction is the one on which I am the most ignorant. Born and bred among the mountains, and having never lived in a seaport, I do not understand even the language and phrases of this subject, and I'm still less familiar with the different forms of construction. At college, indeed, I became acquainted with the principles of the solids of least resistance, but your appeal to the forms of duck and dolphin are more likely to furnish you useful hints. Undeterred, Tudor built a prototype called the Black Swan, which was fitted out as a privateer. It was launched with some success, but the hull shape was not the revolution in shipbuilding that its inventor had hoped. Certainly, it couldn't even hold a candle to the nearly supernatural performance of the USS Constitution, which had been built in a nearby shipyard a decade and a half before. Even in 1859, when Frederick Tudor was mostly retired, his mind raced with schemes. That year, he wrote to Boston Mayor Josiah Quincy with an idea about how the city's streets could be widened without costing the city anything. Even then, nearly 40 years before the city's subway and elevated train systems were begun, Boston's streets were so congested that he could open the letter with a commiseration. Dear Sir, As you have been run over, and I have been knocked down by carriages in the streets of Boston, we have in our own persons practical evidence that our streets are too narrow. Indeed, it seems to me the daily locking and jams of carriages, carts, and wagons to be observed in great numbers of our streets call loudly for a remedy. He proposed a land trading scheme that would benefit the landowners on one side of the street if they all agreed to give up some of their property for the street and sidewalk, saying that it avoided what he called odious betterment laws. Mayor Quincy wrote back and essentially said that it sounded like a very interesting plan, and he'd be curious to hear about the results if it were put into place in some other city. Frederick Tudor had the time to pester Mayor Quincy with his schemes because he had begun to transition into retirement a few years before. In August of 1852, he wrote to a pair of businessmen who he hoped would buy out his ice business. 
The present month, it is 47 years since I formed the plan, and next February, the same number of years since I went to sea with the first cargo in a brig belonging to myself bound for Martinique. I have thought I might yet work upon it up to the half-century, but as I am now just upon the point of being 69 years of age, I prefer now to make the attempt to infuse new youth, skill, and energy into a business which I cannot think but is of great promise for the future, as well as of present good realization that it is one whose risks are known, one wherein good practice and economy tell with great force, finally, one which cannot readily be gone into by others. I have thought it might be of sufficient interest to your house to supply to the business what I inform you are at once, and gradually to relieve me from much care, and soon of all care, in the conduct of the business. When he wasn't busy thinking up schemes, Tudor split his time between a grand estate in the Hunt and his Beacon Hill house at the corner of Beacon and Joy Streets. It was in his Beacon Hill home where he passed away in early 1864 at the age of 80. To learn more about the Ice King, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 211. I have links to all the journal articles I quoted from, period sources about Frederick Tudor and the ice industry, the article from the J.P. Historical Society describing how ice was harvested, and the full text of Walden, including Thoreau's description of the ice harvest. I'll also include some pictures of ice harvesting in 19th century New England, so you can see what ice plows, ice houses, and conveyors look like in action. And for good measure, I'll have an image of a tropical ice house, as designed by Nathaniel Wyeth and Frederick Tudor. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.